I'm delighted, really, just to take some moments now to explore the meaning of Christmas with you this evening. Now, at the outset, I must confess that I'm not a very suitable person to be speaking to you on the subject of Christmas. Um, I come from a Jewish atheist family and had quite a secular upbringing, and so Christmas was not a big thing in my household. Uh, we didn't have any turkey growing up at Christmas time, which I now realize, having tasted it, it was a good thing. Um, my brother persuaded me or, or disabused me of the notion of Santa Claus at the age of four. Um, we didn't have many carols, which if you've heard me sing or had the disappointing privilege to sit near the front, uh, you'll know that that's a good reason, that's a good thing. Um, and even in my teenagers, we didn't have a tree, a Christmas tree, which I was disappointed about and carry the wounds with me to this day. Um, in all seriousness, my parents were not monsters. They gave us lots of presents and we had wonderful food, lots of things. But it meant that I'm fascinated by secular Christmas. Almost from the outside in, I kind of find myself asking, why is it so popular? Now, what do I mean by secular Christmas? Really, I'm not talking about the Christian story. At the heart of Christmas, I became a Christian about 15 years ago while I was at university because I was convinced it was true. We'll come back to that. What I mean by secular Christmas is the fact that we live in a very secular society. Most people have jettisoned the idea of belief in God. And yet, the idea of Christmas remains a kind of enduring prominence. That we have a whole month given over to lots of carols and Christmas meals and presents and all associated elements of Christmas. And I kind of find myself asking why. Why is Christmas so popular in a secular context like ours? And perhaps it's tradition, or perhaps more cynically, people just want some time off, and it's a good excuse for that. But I wonder whether really at the heart of this idea of secular Christmas is the idea of escapism i.e. it's a time of year where we kind of hunker down, where we close the curtains to the outside world and we get under the duvet and kind of pretend that the outside world doesn't really exist. I think behind that kind of escapism is a desire for comfort. And you'll see comfort kind of all the way through the Christmas celebrations. Think about uh, comfort food, how at Christmas time it is normal to consume gargantuan quantities of food, when otherwise the rest of the year it would just feel kind of excessive. Like, let's be honest, over the coming weeks, some of you are going to eat yourselves into a stupor. You're going to eat so much food that you're going to find yourself on the sofa just kind of not really able to do anything else because your body is just processing all the food and you don't have any energy to engage with any other people. Think about all the comfort food at the time of Christmas. Uh, mince pies, Christmas pudding, Yule logs, Stollen, Lieberkuchen, little German biscuits, uh, Quality Street, mulled wine, pigs in blanket, cheese boards. Some of you are salivating at the prospect already, and you'll be glad to know we've got lots of treats after the service <laughs> for you to enjoy. So there's comfort food. I think it's also a time of year for comfort clothing. And what I mean by this is, there is no other time of the year when it's appropriate to wear your pyjamas and a dressing gown for a week, <laughs> except between Christmas Day and, and New Year's Day. There is a, that is totally appropriate in that time, basically, to not wear any outside clothing, if, if, if you follow what I'm saying, and to basically kind of hunker down in your comfort clothes. You like comfort songs, whether it's the kind of traditional Christmas carols like tonight, and that's in fact why some of you came to a carol service like the one we're having this evening, or just those kind of 
Christmas classics, All I Want for Christmas is You, etc. There's a sense to which we like returning to the songs of our childhood. Or think about comfort films, films that, which kind of take us to a kind of fantasy world or just those kind of Christmas classic films. We're looking for stories to escape into, to kind of forget the world and enjoy and immerse ourselves in. Even, I think, the idea of Santa and the grotto and everything else like that, or even the Christian nativity story, become kind of stories for us to enter into and lose ourselves in. So if you accept the premise that Christmas is about escapism and seeking comfort, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? And more precisely, what are we escaping from? What are we seeking comfort in? And the answer of what I think what we're escaping from is really clear, and that is the British weather. <laughs> that it, the reason why we have this festival of lights is because we're in such a season of darkness. The days are getting longer, sorry, the, de- the, the nights are getting longer, the days are getting shorter, uh, it's dark, it's cold, it's gloomy. You know it's getting harder to get out of bed each morning when it's dark. Kind of find ourselves huddling in from the darkness. I, I um, was in a group of people with some Aussies and American and uh, about September time, and we were talking, and suddenly everyone realized that British winter was coming, and there was a kind of collective howl of horror as these guys who'd experienced winter before in Britain just said, kind of like, I do not want to do that again. So on behalf of all British people, let me just apologize for the awful British weather. In fact, there's no, it's no coincidence that we sang a carol uh, entitled In the Bleak Midwinter, that the, uh, the writer of that carol, Christina Rossetti, was an English poet. And I can only imagine that she was drawing from her personal experience of a bleak midwinter. So there's darkness. In this, dark, in this literally dark season, we desire a festival of light. And you can witness it in this room. But actually, this is also the theme at the heart of the Christian Christmas story. The idea of light coming in the darkness. You heard it in the first reading of this evening. The prophet Isaiah described it as a people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And to understand that idea, we need to take a moment to enter in to this idea of darkness. In a way, in a sense, I kind of want to apologize up front and say, you know, this means that this Christmas message is not just kind of a light and fluffy reflection on life, but it involves having to wrestle with what I think are some of the darkest parts of our lives. But bear with me, because I will get to the light. So what do we mean by darkness here? I don't think it's just referring to the weather. See, actually, I would argue that the pursuit of comfort at Christmas is part of a broader longing within the human heart at all times of year to find comfort and hope in the midst of a broken and dark world. To find comfort and hope in the midst of a broken and dark world. See, from a biblical perspective, this idea of darkness describes really the problem of evil. Uh, The desire to escape the darkness, to withdraw from the world and kind of pull the curtains on the world, reflects, I think, a desire to escape the evil and suffering that we see all around us. Today, we have more access to 24-hour news and all sorts of sources of information. And that's a good thing in many ways, but it means we are so regularly confronted and perhaps even fatigued 
by the numerous examples of suffering that we see all around us. From Ukraine to Gaza, we are constantly confronted by the brokenness of this world, by the evil and suffering all around us. And whether it's the suffering we see outside in the news or whether we see it, in the, it more closer to home in the, the people that we love, there is always a temptation to want to kind of withdraw from that suffering, to kind of almost switch off and to switch on Netflix and forget about the suffering that we perceive in the world. And I really think where that's coming from is the fact that we don't have an answer to the suffering that we see, that we don't really have an answer. And therefore, there's almost like we want to withdraw because, in a sense, we feel unable to change the world, to remove the suffering that we observe. But it's not just, this idea of darkness is not just a kind of distant concept. I think it also speaks to our own human experience. That we see darkness out there, but we also see darkness in here. That, you know, again, it's a time of year, we talk about Christmas, just comes after Christmas is New Year's. What happens at New Year's? We, we, put, we go through a ritual of embracing various different New Year's resolutions. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that there is a, a deep longing within many of us to renew ourselves, to change ourselves, that we recognize that we are not the men and women we wish to be, that we expect ourselves to be, let alone that we are the men and women who adhere to some kind of external standard from the God who made us. There is a recognition that we are not the men and women we want to be. And so when we talk about escapism, we talk about escaping from the darkness. On one hand, it's from the darkness and the brokenness of the world, but also there's a longing almost to escape from ourselves. So we're looking for an answer to the darkness that we see around us. But actually, I'd go even a a level deeper. So this idea of darkness doesn't just speak of evil. It also speaks of the reality of despair in the world. It, and it, the reason I say that is because it speaks of the, the human condition of being separated from the God who made us. You see, when Isaiah uh, speaks and he describes a people walking in darkness in this passage, really what he's describing is the experience of walking without God. Now, I hear many of you are here aren't Christians. And so you might say, well, what, what about my experience as someone who's not a Christian, as someone who doesn't have a relationship with God, is darkness, And Isaiah, just before this passage, in the last verse of chapter 8, speaks of those who walk, and it gives a number of descriptions of walking in darkness, but one of the languages he uses is fearful gloom. Fearful gloom. And that idea of fearful gloom, I think we could translate it to despair. And here's my idea, which may sound controversial to you, which is, as we have distanced ourselves from the idea of God that actually we naturally experience a certain sense of despair about the world. Now, let me explain. Well, first of all, to explain that, I need to say, what is despair? Well, I think despair really is a sense of disappointment, that the world is not as it should be, but it's also a sense of hopelessness, a sense of things will not necessarily get better. Disappointment and hopelessness. And of course, there are many reasons, I think, that we experience despair when we look around the world. We see perhaps the negative consequences of technological advancement. We think, think, about, think about social media and the, the next generation and the fears that it might be damaging them or maybe it's the kind of inequality or the conflict that we see in the world. So there's all sorts of reasons for despair that we see and that we hear articulated in our culture, but I'm not really speaking about that kind of despair. I'm saying, actually, if we 
reject the idea that we are made by God, that we embrace a kind of secular hypothesis that we are just a, the product of a random set of biological processes, that actually that worldview naturally leads to a sense of despair about our lives. Now, let me explain. And probably the best way of explaining actually is to, give you, to, 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 to share with you a quote from a man called Yuval Harari. And he basically, he's an atheist writer, he wrote Sapiens and a number of other books. And basically his argument is, if we accept the secular perspective that there is no God, then actually we have to come to the conclusion that our lives fundamentally don't have any meaning. And this is what he says, as far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan, hence any meaning that people ascribe to their lives is just a delusion. So you have to ask the question, do you believe your life is meaningless? I suspect most of us don't, as we hear that idea of kind of secularism leading to a sense of meaninglessness, we will be grabbing hold of things that we say, no, this makes my life feel meaningful. In a sense, what I'm saying is none of us want uh, Yuval Harari to be right. But if there is no God, then we're left with the disturbing reality that we live and that we die, and like millions before us, we are forgotten. And really what I think this is speaking to is the way that the secular worldview has no comfort against the greatest cause of despair, and that is the reality of death. That this is the ultimate cause of hopelessness and despair that is lingering beneath the surface in the human condition. Uh, the poet William Bryant, who wrote the poem Thanatopsis, describes this sense of existential dread at the reality of death. And he describes it as breathless darkness to describe the problem of death. Breathless darkness. The ultimate darkness is death. And then he says, breathless darkness and the narrow house, talking about a coffin, make thee shudder and grow sick at heart. And what he's saying is from the secular perspective, you didn't come from anywhere, you didn't... You're not going somewhere, and you're occupying your days until inevitable oblivion. And I would just argue, which amongst us, whatever worldview we have, does not recognize some desire within us for hope and comfort against this existential despair? Actually, this is interesting, but why, this is why a number of atheist writers have written at length about the longing that they have for God. Now, they're not saying this makes it true. We'll come back to that. But they're saying they recognise within themselves a longing for God. So the atheist writer Julian Barnes said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I wonder if you resonate with that. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Uh, David Baddiel, an uh, atheist comedian uh, and writer, wrote a book called The God Desire. And in it, he makes a really honest confession that speaks to this reality. He said he makes an admission which most, athe most atheists, speak, I'm, I'm quoting him, um, an admission which most atheists, I've noticed, aren't prepared to make, which is, I love God. The idea, that is, of him. Who would not love a superhero dad who chases off death? 
Now, this, I would maybe take issue with the simplicity that he puts it there, but there is some truth to what he's saying in, in my understanding of who God is. He said, the desire is real. The need to imagine an exit door somewhere to escape constantly oncoming death is one I can confidently predict exists within most humans. Perhaps you see this longing for God, or this longing at least for comfort and hope in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the problem of despair in yourself. So what is our hope amidst the darkness? And the Christian faith makes a remarkable claim. It says, we do not need to escape the darkness. We do not need to even pretend that the darkness isn't there. But rather, the living God who made the universe has stepped down into the darkness of human experience in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the embodiment of the hope that we're longing for. He is the answer, the ge- he brings with him the genuine comfort that we are longing for amidst the darkness. This is what Isaiah is speaking about when he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's speaking hundreds of years before Jesus comes along, but he's speaking of a time when the great light would come in the darkness. And he's saying, Jesus Christ is that light. Now, I want to unpack what I mean by Jesus as the light, but my fear is, as I explain Christ as the light in the darkness, that for many of you, that will just kind of go over your heads. And what I mean by that is, that concept will not particularly resonate with you. But I I want you to see the significance of what it means that Christ is the light in the darkness. And the way to understand that is, you need to feel what that feels like. To feel like what darkness feels like. And the problem is, you all live in London, so you don't really experience darkness. <laughs> and what I mean, you've got street lamps all around you. You're very rarely in genuine darkness. So I want you to go on a thought experiment with me. Imagine yourself, you've gone out of London for a weekend, and you go to an Airbnb, and you're staying in an Airbnb with a, some friends, and you, um, it's in the middle of the countryside, you know, desert, kind of deserted location, but you know there's a pub about a 20-minute walk away. And, um, and it's a dark night, and there's no stars, and you, you make your way to the pub using the lights of your phones, I'm sure, um, to get there. And, and your batteries on your phones, they run out. So just for argument's sake, you get that, come there, and you're on your way home, and, you've got, and you realise you've got no torchlight. And you're in actual pitch black darkness in a place you don't know, in a rural area where there's no kind of street lamps, nothing to guide your way, and you're in the middle of, for argument's sake, a forest. And uh, I want to ask you, what do you feel like in that moment? What does it feel like to be in the darkness? I suspect you feel cold because darkness, nighttime, is cold, especially in England. So we know you feel cold. But I think quite quickly you would feel vulnerable. You would feel vulnerable in the darkness as you'd say, I can't see more than a few centimetres in front of me. I can't see what's in this darkness. It's a natural moment where you would feel a deep sense of fear you might even start to feel despair as you kind of realise that you obviously can't make it to your home where you're going to this this Airbnb because you literally are lost in the darkness. And so you probably have to sit down and think, well, we're just going to stay here all night. And maybe if you're on your own, you really would feel that fear and that despair. And you go through the night and you probably can't sleep because you've got the adrenaline running as you're thinking, like, what could happen? And then imagine for a moment, it's five in the morning, and I don't know if you've been up at four or five in the morning and you start to hear the chirps of the birds and a few moments, sometime later, you start to see the dawn come in the distance. And in that moment, how would it feel after a night in the cold and the darkness 
as you see the lights, your heart would lift. You'd feel a sense of hope again. I can make my way home. I know where we're going. We feel safe. You can go and find refuge. There's a sense of kind of safety in that. A sense of hope. Delight even. If you've been anywhere in the, and you've seen the dawn rise, you know you kind of, your heart lifts as the light kind of cut. You see the full extent of the dawn and you feel the warmth of the sun on your face. And I think that feeling of hope, that feeling of delight, is something to which you're meant to be feeling, as you hear Isaiah speak, of light coming in the darkness. He speaks of rejoicing and celebration, and it's meant to be a hope-filled announcement. So why? Why is it such an announcement of hope? Why does the Christian story bring hope? And really, what the, the first thing you've got to hear is this is saying, the light has dawned. The light has Arrived. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone, or another translation has dawned. They describe a kind of entry into the world of hope. And that, that hope has come not as a philosophy, not as a set of ideas, as most time that's how we think of hope. Hope has come in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. It says, the living God sees us walking in darkness and steps into that darkness, who to both to reveal himself to us so that we may no longer walk in ignorance, but also so that we might be reconciled to him, that we might experience the relationship that he made us for, that he made us for a relationship with himself. And so he steps into the darkness and he shines his light so that we can be connected with him to offer you a way back to the light. And this is the most remarkable truth, I think, at the heart of the Christian story, the the kind of miracle of miracles. Before we get to virgin birth and all sorts of other things, the most remarkable claim at the heart of the Christian story is the God who made the universe, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who created the galaxies, the stars, the planets, the animal and plant kingdom, who made everything that exists, came to earth as a squealing, crying, dependent baby who needed his bottom wiped. That's an unbelievable idea. I believe it, and I think that's unbelievable. That, that, that the living God, the creator of the universe, would step into his creation. That the light would step into the darkness. That the embodiment of greatness would become weakness. Who would step into our world as a crying baby. And what this means, first of all, is there's no more uncertainty Philosophers and religious teachers have grappled and speculated and suggested ideas about the divine for the generations and the millennia. And to many of you would say, well, look, we just can't know. You know, you can have your ideas about God and I can have mine. But this says no, actually. There need need be no more uncertainty because the living God has stepped into our world. He's put on flesh So he speaks our language and he's revealed himself to us. John, one of the writers of the the New Testament, of the the account, one of the gospel writers, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, um, describes this idea. And you can almost hear the kind of awe in his voice as he writes this. He said, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus Christ, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. And just stop a second. What is he saying? He's saying, we have touched God. We have touched God. 
We saw him with our own eyes. We were with him in his darkest moments on this planet. We watched him and with him for three years. We have touched God. And we too, as we read these eyewitness accounts, in a sense, can say with them that through them, we, humanity, have touched God. It's an incredible idea. And the natural question we have to ask when we hear this is why? If this is true, why would God enter into our world? Remember that before this has happened, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in a kind of place of great authority. And yet he condescends, he steps down into human history. He steps into an evil and broken world full of uncertainty and despair, as we said, and he humbles himself to become a baby. In fact, it doesn't end there. He humbles himself ultimately to go to the cross, to die a humiliating and excruciating death at the hands of the Romans. Why would he do this? And the answer really is simple. It's the center of the Christian faith. It's that God is love. The reason why Christ is willing to humble himself and step into our world is because he loves us. He made us for a relationship with himself. And he comes on a mission to be reunited and reconciled with the people that he made. So I do not want you walking in darkness anymore. Come to me and experience the love that you were made for. And you know what this says? It says it matters that it happened. You see, when we look at the nativity story and you think about Mary and you heard of Mary hearing this and, and having this announcement from an angel, you kind of think of a kind of heavenly or pious world. You think of a woman with, in a stained glass w- window kind of looking up piously and it doesn't feel real. And everything about the Gospels, everything about the Bible is saying, no, this actually happened. That this was an ordinary woman from a poor background living in an unknown rural backwater in northern Palestine, in a people who were living under Roman occupation, who was probably in in her early to mid-teens, because that was kind of the age that you got married in those days. So we're really thinking about a teenage mum living in a rural village in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing particularly significant about her. And in fact, it's the ordinariness of Mary that makes this story so remarkable, that the living God would come and kind of, put himself, put Jesus Christ in her womb and that she would become the most famous, one of the most famous women who ever lived. If it's true, this changes everything. And if it's not true, well, then you can ignore everything that Christian ha- Christianity has to say. Now, I realise that many of you are not Christian here and, the, and as you hear this unbelievable, remarkable claim, there are many of you who would say it's exactly that, it's unbelievable. How could you possibly believe such a thing? And there's much we could say, and we could look at the evidence for the Gospels and the evidence that convinces us that Jesus really was resurrected, that he rose from the dead, that convinces us that he was not just a man, but was God in the flesh. But the one thing I would say to you this evening on that would be, why does Jesus buck the trend of human history? Why does Jesus buck the trend of human history? You see, the claims that Jesus makes here are utterly unique among world faiths. Think about Muhammad or Buddha or the Sikh Guru Nanak. None of them claim to be God in the flesh. They all claim to be a religious teacher, a a leader to the divine, but they don't claim to be the divine themselves. Jesus makes the most incredible claim that he's God in the flesh. And think about how you would respond if someone claimed to be God to you. You'd laugh them out of the room. You'd probably think they need a a mental health diagnosis. Isn't that how we treat most people in human history who have claimed to be God? Or maybe even they might have a kind of following, a massive group of people while they're alive. They convince people with the power of their charisma or whatever. But then after they die, 
those people leave them because they say, well, obviously they're not God, they're dead. So why is Jesus different? Why is Jesus able to amass such a following, both during his life, but actually even after his life, despite the fact that he makes such an incredible claim? Think about it. Jesus is almost certainly one of the most significant people who ever lived, purely on historical terms, purely on the number of people who've been influenced by his life. Why does he buck the trend of history and having made such incredible claims and yet has such an impact on the world? Why, why does his movement explode after his, life, after his death? Why after his death do thousands of people come to believe that, that he is who he said he is? And I think the, the answer that we would give as Christians is that he was actually resurrected. They came back to life three days after he died. Hundreds saw him alive. Remember at the time that the, the Christian movement was an illegal cult. The Roman Empire persecuted Christians and stood against them for the first 300 years of Christianity's existence. Why was Christianity so successful? Why did, why did Jesus buck the trend of history? I think one consideration I give you is his character. That his character is one of the reasons he left such an indelible mark on those who followed him. You see, it describes here about a light dawning or a light shining. It's not just that we've kind of glimpsed the light, it's that the light has shone. And what I think it's describing there is the fact that we have seen the person of Christ. We have seen his character. And those of us who are Christians, and I told you I didn't come from a Christian family, many of us who've become Christians have done it because we have encountered Christ in the Gospels, in the accounts of his life, and we have seen in him an incredible greatness. Notice how Isaiah calls him a great light. We've seen a greatness that draws us to him. And what, you know, interestingly, Albert Einstein, who wasn't a Christian, was pushed by a journalist um, as to whether he accepted the historical existence of Christ. And he, I think, alludes to this same greatness or, that we see in the Gospels. He said, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. So what personality do we see in the Gospels? Well, I think we see a really remarkable combination of courage, of compassion, of love, of power and authority. Let me give you a few examples. We see his courage. We see Jesus is the living embodiment of the willingness to speak truth to power. He speaks and challenges the religious leaders of his day. And most precisely, he sees through their religious pretense. He can see that they are kind of establishing religious systems really to feather their own nests and establish a name for themselves. And, and he can see their hypocrisy. And he challenges them, even knowing that they are kind of the most powerful people around. And in fact, they will lead, they will kind of ensure that Christ ends up being crucified by the Roman authority. So he's willing to speak truth to power, to courageously challenge those who are effectively lying, even to his own personal risk. We see his courage. We see his compassion. We see him moving towards the broken and the outcasts of society. But what's really interesting is we see they are comfortable in his presence. They spend time with him. The people who know that their lives are messy, that they are broken, that they are in need of forgiveness. It's almost like they can, they can sense in him his grace and mercy in his presence. So we see his compassion. We see, we see his humility. Not just his humility to step into our world, but also just, just the willingness to serve others. This is why we describe him as the servant king. One example is um, he's teaching his disciples that they must 
indeed serve one another and go on to serve the people around them. And he does it by washing their feet. A few days, a little while before his crucifixion, he washes his disciples' feet. And it sounds kind of gross to us, but it's really gross in those days because you've got to imagine their feet are dirty and walking around all the mud and horse poo and things like that um, that they're seeing. And, And yet he stoops into the role of a servant. He puts on a towel and he just washes his disciples' feet. And there's a certain almost kind of you can't do this, Jesus, in some of their responses. Because here is the man who has authority over the whole universe, who's the king of all creation, and yet he's willing to serve and to wash his disciples' feet. So we see his humility. We see his power, that he moves towards the sick and the dying, bringing healing wherever he goes, really speaking to God's power to bring healing and restoration to the most broken of individuals. So we see his power. We see his love. Really, all the way through the Gospels, you'll see his love. You'll see he weeps over Jerusalem at one point. He weeps over his people, longing that they would come back to him. We see his love in his willingness to go to the cross. Remember I said it was this great, humiliating and excruciating death. The crescendo moment of his ministry is not in his life, but in his death. Why? Because in his death, He takes the punishment that we deserve for rejecting God on himself so that all people can be reconciled with God. All people have a way back to God. And he does it, why? Because he loves us, because he wants to be reconciled with us. So we see, and actually what's really interesting, the disciples would have witnessed this. They would have seen him in his worst moments and his best moments. They would have seen him angry. They would have seen him tired. They would have seen him upset, and yet they were convinced that this man was not an ordinary man, but was worthy of the title that Isaiah gives him in that passage. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. They'd seen him all. They'd seen it warts and all, and yet they were convinced that this was the living God come to reign and to live amongst us. But what difference does this make? Really, I think this comes back to that longing for comfort and hope that I mentioned. I would argue that Christ is the answer to the longing for comfort and hope that we have in our hearts. And he is the genuine comfort and hope that we're longing for. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, I'd say genuine comfort. You heard one of the titles that's given to God, Everlasting Father. And I think we are living in a kind of era of cosmic orphanhood. And what I mean by that is we were made to live under the rule and care of our heavenly Father, the one who knows us, who made us, who loves us, who cares for us, who works all situations for our benefit and good, doesn't mean that we won't suffer, but knows our needs and provides for us and cares for us. And because we've rejected God, we have removed from ourselves the answer to the discomfort and suffering of our, that we need. In a sense, we've, we've removed the comfort that we need in the midst of suffering. See, the Christian life doesn't say you won't suffer, but it says in the midst of your suffering, you have a God who cares for you and loves you and is with you in your darkest moments. So as you come to know Christ, you experience the genuine comfort that your soul is longing for. That is the ultimate answer to to the broken world. That is the answer to the anxiety that you feel, is you have a Father who cares for you, so you don't have to run, you don't have to escape your problems, you run to him with your problems. You experience genuine comfort, you experience genuine hope. I said that as Christ died for us, he comes with the promise that all who put their faith in him 
will experience eternal life, that they will one day be resurrected with Christ, which means they do not live with a fear of death. They do not live with that great source of despair looming over them. They live with the promise of an eternal life. That is the answer to the longing for hope and the fear of death that exists within every human being. And finally, we experience genuine contentment. Genuine contentment. It is my conviction that every human being has a deep longing for love within them. A longing for love which is often expressed in the pursuit and desire for a romantic partner, but it's also expressed, I think, even in our kind of ambition and our desire for success, because we desire success to get the approval and the applause of our peers, and in one sense that's a kind of pursuit of love. I would argue that the desire for love in each person points to the fact that they were made for the love that comes from God. But it's only when we connect with the love of our Heavenly Father, the, the same love that sent Jesus to the cross to die for us, that we find the answer, the deepest source of contentment in our lives. This love says, I have failed and I will fail. I will fail to meet my expectations, ex- the expectations that I put on myself. I will fail even the people I love. And yet, at the deepest root of who I am, I know that I'm loved. I promise you that just changes everything. To know that you're loved at the deepest part of who you are, even in your deepest moment of failure, it changes everything. And I believe that's the answer to the search for contentment in the human soul. And so what this says is there's no need to escape the darkness. That true comfort, hope, and contentment is found in the person of Christ. Now, I'm not expecting to have convinced you about this today. And as Luke mentioned, you may, there are lots of books and things you can read, etc., etc. But what if it's true? What if it's true that if the living God really did enter into our world? What if there is a love at the centre of the universe that really is the answer to your deepest longing? What if this whole story isn't just a fantasy, but it actually happened and there is hope for life after death? I'm, I was so convinced of this. I became a Christian and now I'm a pastor. I've given my life to the promotion of this idea because I'm convinced it's true and I'm convinced that this is the truth that has the greatest power to change the world. So you must hear the invitation to come to the light. This isn't just a kind of announcement of light at the, at the at kind of the dawn over there in the distance. This is the announcement that Christ is shining his light into your life. And with the announcement of that light comes an invitation to come into the light, to step out of the darkness, to step out of the condition of despair and self-destruction and the destruction of others that we all have a tendency towards, and instead come to the living God, come and walk in the light and find the love that you were made for. I want every one of you to hear that invitation tonight.